Hi, this is M. Allen Cunningham. I'm recording on May 14th, 2020. Uh, today is the 95th anniversary of the publication of Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. So in honor of this anniversary, I'm sharing a lecture about Mrs. Dalloway for creative writers. Uh, this was given in my advanced creative writing course at Portland State University this past winter. I hope you enjoy it as a way of creatively exploring Wolf's great novel, uh, especially if you're a creative writer yourself. Okay, hello everyone. How are we doing? Ready for Mrs. Dalloway? Uh, does everybody have their copy with them? Okay. Uh, the way we'll do this, I think, is I'll, I'll spend the first part of the class meeting talking. I'm going to say a bit about Virginia Woolf, some biographical info and other things, and then some um, aspects of Mrs. Dalloway that I'd like to focus on. And then I think we'll take a break, and during the second half, we'll come in for more like a discussion. Okay? All right, so I'm going to, I've prepared a lecture about Mrs. Dalloway. Um, I spent a lot of time on this, so please take notes, <laughs> if only to humor me so that I'm not looking at people who are just staring at me, because I feel like there's going to be some good takeaways in this. I've built it around certain principles that I think you can apply to your own work, okay? We all can. There are uh, a series of questions that we maybe should all be asking about our own work, okay? Um, I do recognize that Mrs. Dalloway is a difficult book. Right? I said that from the beginning. That's why I gave you all so much time to read it. That's why I gave you sort of, I, I kind of asked for updates as the term progressed. And I put this discussion of the book at the end of the term for that reason. Uh, it is a difficult book, but this is an upper division college course. So I, I'm confident you can all handle it. I wouldn't have laid this novel on you uh, at the beginning of the term, though. Uh, and I, I wouldn't expect you to follow Wolf's, if you, especially if you're new to Wolf, uh, to follow Wolf's narrative or stream of consciousness or perspective shifts uh, without a setup, which is why I did the little setup that I did with the clips from Wings of Desire. So hopefully you found that helpful, at least as an entree into the book and its really dense style. Um, but we've spent the term exploring these various principles, right? Principles of clarity, rhythm, consciousness, foremost, right? That's been something we've carried with us into each class meeting. We've talked about narrative and style, character and time, voice, perspective, theme, intention, technique, and effect. In every workshop, that's been our focus, right? Intention, technique, effect, syntax, diction, talking about just sentence construction, sentence making. Um, with the reading we did from Winterson, we talked about Jeanette Winterson, we talked about exactitude and precision, and that's something we've continued to revisit in workshops too, I think. Grammatical uh, exactitude, um, syntactical exactitude, uh, dictional precision. And we've talked about the idea of statement versus expression, which is um, something I prefer as an alternative to show versus tell. Um, and all of these, Mrs. Dalloway in its own densely woven style, incorporates all of these things we've been talking about through the term. And that's why I placed it at the end as well, because I feel that, like this is a culminating text for us. We're seeing a lot of things at work here that we've been thinking about, focusing on, hopefully putting into practice to at least some degree. Do I expect you to look at Mrs. Dalloway as the kind of work you might write? 
<laughs> or should write? No. But I expect you to engage with this novel on its own terms. Uh, try to give yourself over to its effects. So if you haven't finished it, I hope you will still do that. Um, something I, I recognized really on a visceral level, rereading the novel again in preparation for this, was how difficult it is in the first 60 pages or so, and then it just glides. And that's partly because there's all these dense <coughs> perspective shifts jammed up against each other in those first 60 pages. But then you get into these long, sustained sections where you're in single perspectives for a long time. And the writing is masterful. It really hypnotizes you. Um, so I expect you to engage with the book on its own terms, give yourself over to its effects, try to understand why it is a work that is universally beloved. And we're going to hopefully talk about that. And I expect you, in doing all that, to at least see what's possible. Virginia Woolf is a beacon of what's possible in this discipline of creative writing. And I think that's just one beautiful thing about literature and writing. Because in life, if we live beyond our means, there will be pretty serious consequences, right? Uh, interest rates, bankruptcies. Um, but as writers, we can read beyond our means without consequences. No interest rates, no bankruptcies. And in fact, I think it's essential that we do read beyond our means. That's how growth happens, right? I still feel that I'm reading beyond my means when I reread Mrs. Dalloway. And I find that to be a great feeling, actually. <laughs> it energizes me. Um, it's through reading beyond our means that we come to understand what's possible. And then we can take that understanding and begin to apply it, maybe step by step. Maybe each time we revisit the book, we can apply it a little more. But unless we see what's possible, um, we find ourselves trading in familiar tropes and um, techniques and maybe not knowing how very familiar it all is. So that's what we do as creative writers. We pay attention. As workers of the imagination, attention is our business. And part of that is reading. We read and we pay attention to what we read. We look to the lasting stuff when we read, not only to the more contemporary stuff, although there's a lot of stuff out there contemporarily that's really wonderful too. We challenge ourselves to take on the unfamiliar, to try more, to read beyond our own writing abilities in order to see what's possible, to find out what we might try. So maybe it's something to do with character. Maybe it's something to do with consciousness, something to do with time, something to do with setting, uh, something to do with rhythm. We pay attention. We pick up little pieces. And we realize in doing that, in engaging seriously with the work of others, especially work that seems beyond our own means as writers, we realize how much attention they have paid in their own work. And I think one of the major virtues of Mrs. Dalloway, even now, almost 100 years after it was published, it was published in 1925, even now one of its major virtues is its enduring strangeness. It's still an extremely experimental book and extremely strange in its effects. And that strangeness endures because Wolfe herself was paying attention. So one classic bit of writerly advice is try to be the kind of person on whom nothing is lost. That applies in our writing life as writers, and it applies in our reading life as writers. Okay, 
So I'm going to start with a little biographical sketch about Wolf. Do any of us know very much about her life? Okay. Um, I think it's an interesting life. It's a resilient life. It's, it's a really inspiring life. So she was born in London, 1882. She was raised in Kensington, upper middle class area of London. Uh, she was the third of four children. She had two brothers and one sister, Vanessa. Their, their father's name was Leslie Stephen. He was a lapsed clergyman. He was well-known uh, in literary and political circles. He was a journalist and an intellectual. And he moved in these literary circles with people like Henry James, Matthew Arnold, Alfred Lord Tennyson, Thomas Hardy, George Eliot. He kind of knew all the who's who figures of his day in the literary world. And by all accounts, he was uh, a very caring and affectionate father. There he is with Virginia, and she's young, uh, Virginia's mother. Um, she died when Virginia was 13 at age 48. And it was a family tragedy. It was a shock. And uh, Virginia's first mental breakdown comes come soon after her mother's death. And uh, her mental health remained a liability for her throughout the rest of her life. She had numerous breakdowns and even outright psychotic episodes with hallucinations. Um, Part of that might owe to the fact that she was traumatized early in her youth. And there were two boys, stepbrothers. And um, it's pretty well certain, pretty well documented, that Virginia was sexually molested in her youth by at least one of those half-brothers, George Duckworth. Um, Virginia and her sister Vanessa have no formal education, really. They don't get to go off to school like their brothers do. That was just the nature of the times. Um, but their father, Leslie Stephen, pays for them to have private lessons. He brings tutors in, uh, and Vanessa gets to go to a private art school. She becomes a painter, actually a very accomplished painter. Um, Virginia has a tutor in Greek and Latin at home, and they both also, even though they didn't, they're not going off to school, they have access to their father's library, which is this huge uh, resource and he encourages Virginia from early on in her interest in becoming a writer. <clears throat> he nurtures that in her and gives her books to read and kind of guides her uh, through his library. He dies in 1904 when Virginia is 22. And then within a few years, she and um, Vanessa move from Kensington to Bloom Bloomsbury, another neighborhood of London, uh, to a place on Gordon Square. 46 Gordon Square, which becomes a famous address. Virginia and Vanessa are now completely unsupervised. Their mother's gone, their father's gone. They don't really have any significant ties to other adult members of their family. They're unsupervised, they're liberated from the disapproval of elders, and they begin to assert a new independent lifestyle that's extremely unconventional, even shocking by the conventions of their day. They hold soirees at 46 Gordon Square, and they soon attract this whole host of young London intellectuals and artists, and they become known as the Bloomsbury Group. We've heard of them, right? The Bloomsbury Group. Um, there was no like uniting theory or cause or creed that held the Bloomsbury Group together, um, but generally they were atheists, they were pacifists, conscientious objectors, they were socialist-leaning, they were feminist. Even a number of the men espoused feminist ideas. They were sexually liberated. They were non-monogamous. They were non-binary. And they were intellectually ravenous. 
they were also really cliquish and exclusive. And if you failed to make a good witticism on your first visit to the Bloomsbury group, you wouldn't be invited back. At a certain point, several members of the group lived together in a London house, not just Vanessa and Virginia, but a whole group of them. And that's when this young soldier and writer named Leonard Wolfe joins the group. Uh, he, he and Virginia quickly become intimate, and then he proposes marriage in January of 1912. And in May of 1912, she accepts. And in August, they're married. Virginia's 30 years old. So Virginia Stephen becomes Virginia Woolf. Her mental illness continues to be a problem, and she is, has a few breakdowns soon after they marry. Uh, and she even attempts suicide during one of those breakdowns in 1913, the following year. And then in March 1915, Virginia publishes her first novel. It's called The Voyage Out. She and Leonard move just outside of London to a suburb called Richmond uh, and into a house called Hogarth House. And uh, she has another breakdown around this time, 1915. So they take up life in Hogarth House. They're actually basically poor, kind of just stringing along uh, an income. They're both exhausted by her illness and these episodes, but she starts work on her second novel, and that's called Night and Day. And then in 1917, this is a huge turning point for both of them, and actually for the history of Western literature, you could say. They buy a small hand-operated printing press for 20 pounds, 20 English pounds, and they take up printing just as a hobby, as a diversion for Virginia, for her mental health, to get her mind off other matters. And together they print and publish 150 copies of this little book called Two Stories. There's one story in it by Virginia and one by Leonard. Um, just 150 copies. But with this book, they found their own little tiny publishing company called the Hogarth Press. They do all the typesetting and printing right in their dining room at Hogarth House on this little press that's about this big. Um, but in the years to come, they will begin publishing Virginia's books through the press as well. So she's basically self-published from that point on through her writing career. And they publish many other titles by other writers. Hogarth House authors include um, Catherine Mansfield, E.M. Forster. They published the first edition of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland in 1923, a huge, hugely important, influential modernist work. And they eventually even published Sigmund Freud. They published some of the first English translations of Freud's work. They're even given a chance to publish James Joyce's Ulysses but they pass because it's too big a job on that little press. <laughs> and it was too big a job for a Virginian to handset all that type. In 1925, she publishes Mrs. Dalloway uh, through the Hogarth Press. Here's some, just an assortment of their titles. They were all beautifully designed, and Vanessa being an artist and a painter designed a lot of covers. Um, okay, so we're going to move into the discussion of Mrs. Dalloway now, which she publishes in 1925 through the Hogarth Press, self-published. It's never gone out of print since, um, and it's beloved around the world now. Um, it was simultaneously published also in the United States by Harcourt Brace, but uh, she published it in England. So around the time she starts the book, we can see in her diary how she's beginning to think about this project, and she starts this project in a time when she's feeling a sense of real peace and almost like peaceful resignation about her career prospects. 
after her first two novels, she kind of settles into herself and she determines to write more in her own peculiar way than ever before. Um, the Hogarth Press allows her to do this. She doesn't have to answer to an editor or a publishing house who will say, you have to change this or this or this. She can do whatever she wants. So in February 1922, I've made up my mind that I'm not going to be popular. And so genuinely that I look upon disregard or abuse as a part of my bargain. I'm to write what I like and they're to say what they like. My only interest as a writer lies in some queer individuality. So she starts writing Mrs. Dalloway as a short story in 1922. And then July she's saying, there's no doubt in my mind that I have found out how to begin at age 40 to say something in my own voice and that interests me so that I feel I can go ahead without praise. And then a few months later that same year, she started to think more specifically about the nature of this book and its themes. Mrs. Dalloway has branched into a book from a short story, right? And I adumbrate here a study of insanity and suicide, the world seen by the sane and the insane side by side, something like that. Septimus Smith, is that a good name? It's really cool to see these first inklings of this project. Um, a year later, after starting the, a year after she started that short story, she's still deeply immersed in this project of the novel, and she clearly feels like she's going out on a limb. So this is June 1923. In this book, I have almost have too many ideas. I want to give life and death, sanity and insanity. I want to criticize the social system and to show it at work at its most intense. I become anonymous, a person who writes for the love of it. Without any praise, I should be content to go on. Um, so still a few months later, she jots down these words about her approach to the characterizations in the novel. And this is kind of our jumping off point into discussion of the novel in this lecture. She says something really beautiful here. August 1923, I should say a good deal about the hours. That was the working title for Mrs. Dalloway. And my discovery, how I dig out beautiful caves behind my characters. I think that gives exactly what I want, humanity, humor, depth. The idea is that the caves shall connect and each comes to daylight at the present moment. I love this phrase. I dig out beautiful caves behind my characters. Um, I believe that is exactly the effect that Wolf achieves with each of the primary characters in this novel. And she achieves it through an extreme attention to perspective, right? Multiple perspectives. But as we've discussed in the course of this term, Perspective is not simply a designation. It's not simply first person versus third person versus second person, whatever. It's not simply a way of activating the puppets of our characters through pronouns. She walked versus I walked. No, as we've said, perspective is nothing more or less than perception, right? And perception is an act of consciousness. So... Perspective might be who observes. Perception, what it's really about, is what they observe. And then the effect, ultimately, of that is how a character observes. So perspective is nothing more or less than perception. And perception is an act of consciousness. Perspective is perception is consciousness. This takes us a little bit farther afield, I think, than, than is generally kind of, kind of considered when we're thinking about perspective. 
So I want to stress this, and we'll, we'll get into it a little more deeply here. This is a main principle we've explored in this course. Perspective is nothing more or less than perception. Perception is an act of consciousness. So perception is differently inflected in every person's case. Every person sitting in this room has different ways of perceiving. And when we pay it close attention as writers, it can lead us deeply into our characters, into the beautiful, deep, spacious cave of their consciousness, right? Where these awesome stalactites and crystals and other amazing forms and rhythms grow. And these, these rhythms and forms are individualized, they're peculiar, they're surprising, they're revealing. So the question in terms of characterization and perspective is not only who sees or what they see, but how they see. So in the first pages of the novel, Clarissa Dalloway does walk to Bond Street, but it's not just that activation of a puppet through a pronoun. She walks to, to Bond Street. We can look at the beautiful cave that Wolf carves out behind Clarissa as she's walking. So hopefully you all have the sheet now, right, with the excerpts on it. So let's look at this first excerpt, excerpt A, as an example of consciousness and this deep cave of character. So this is Clarissa's perspective. See how much more she's doing than just perspective. It's about perception and consciousness. She remembered once throwing a shilling into the serpentine, but everyone remembered what she loved was this, here, now, in front of her, the fat lady in the cab. Did it matter then, she asked herself, walking towards Bond Street, Did it matter that she must inevitably cease completely? All this must go on without her. Did she resent it? Or did it not become consoling to believe that death ended absolutely? But that somehow in the streets of London, on the ebb and flow of things, here, there, she survived. Peter survived. Lived in each other. She being part, she was positive, of the trees at home, of the house there, ugly, rambling all to bits and pieces as it was, part of people she had never met, being laid out like a mist between the people she knew best, who lifted her on their branches as she had seen the trees lift the mist. But it spread ever so far, her life, herself. So it's perspective as a kind of stream of consciousness, but it's controlled. And this is actually one of the differences between Wolf and Joyce, I think, in how they use stream of consciousness. It's controlled and thematically precise. It's focused on the themes that remain so central throughout the novel. So life and death, time and the individual, memory, ghosts, society, relationships. And this passage places Clarissa against this vast backdrop of time itself. She says, her perspective, the voice says, all this must go on without her. Right? She's placed against something bigger than herself. But it also locates her specifically in the streets of London, on the ebb and flow of things. And the perspective, the consciousness, also suggests that she is, that we all are, united in each other as a part of the fabric of time, even of all times, past, present, and future. And this is because of memory, but it's also because of something we don't fully understand, but that we can sense in the workings of time, the workings of consciousness. She survived, Peter survived, lived in each other. She being part, she was positive of the trees at home, part of people she had never met. It spread ever so far her life, herself. 
So in Mrs. Dalloway, consciousness is also evoked through character in relationship to time. Consciousness as character in relationship to time. So every character in this novel has a vivid, pulsing, I'd even say like electric, just fired up relationship with time. And let's remember another main principle of this course. A character's relationship to time will be one of their most defining attributes. And time is everywhere on every page in this novel. It was a novel originally titled The Hours, remember? Time is there in the regular tolling of Big Ben. The bells, those leaden circles of sound dissolving in the air. That's one of the refrains in the book, right? The leaden circles dissolved in the air. Those bells unite each of the characters across the geographical span of London. So time itself is uniting them. And the bells also often signal a narrative shift in perspective from one character to another. Um, So we see it in Big Ben. We see time in each of the characters' memories, their regrets, the ghosts that haunt them. They each have their own ghost. So Clarissa is haunted by Sally Seton and her kiss, right? Peter is haunted by all that passed between him and Clarissa when they were younger at Borton. Clarissa refusing him by the fountain in the garden. Septimus is haunted by the traumas of war. The dead officer Evans, who appears to him in Regent's Park. And Rezia, Septimus' wife, is haunted by her youth in Italy. A happy time, but it feels really far away, especially now from her life in London with Septimus, who's going mad. So characters' relationship to time will be one of their most defining attributes. So here's a question this great novel might encourage you to ask about your characters in your own writing. Who are your characters' ghosts? What has your character inherited, good and bad? What do they hope for? What do they regret? A character's relationship to time will be one of their most defining attributes. And time is also in these frequent images throughout the novel of an ancient world. And these images, they float up into each character's consciousness and they're juxtaposed against modern London. So we see how Rezia's mind moves into this ancient past during her panic about Septimus's mad spell in Regent's Park. And that's in excerpt B here. So let's take a look at that. Time and character... Set against characters set against a vast time. So Rezia, I am alone, she cried by the fountain in Regent's Park. As perhaps at midnight, when all boundaries are lost, the country reverts to its ancient shape as the Romans saw it, lying cloudy when they landed, and the hills had no names, and rivers wound they knew not where. Such was her darkness. So images of an ancient world, ancient Roman London. And so we also see how Peter, in his perspective sections, he hears ancient Paleolithic time in the voice of a woman singing for coins on the street in front of the Regent's Park tube station, right? So that's excerpt C here. Through all the ages, when the pavement was grass, when it was swamp, through the age of tusk and mammoth, through the age of silent sunrise, the battered woman, for she wore a skirt with her right hand exposed, her left clutching at her side, stood singing of love, 
Love which has lasted a million years, she sang. Love which prevails. And millions of years ago, her lover, who had been dead these centuries, had walked. So we have the age of swamp, the age of tusk and mammoth. We have millions of years. We have centuries, right? Images of the ancient world. Everywhere this novel is suggesting that the characters, and even that we as readers, and this is one of the most profound effects in the book, I think, we all live not in any single time alone, but in all times. So another question inspired by Wolf's work here, related to how characters relating to time and how that is a defining attribute, might be this. How have you placed your character against the larger span of time beyond that character's immediate circumstances? What does that open up for you in the character and in the themes that you're working with and in the setting and the world around the character? The people around the character. Memories. Cynthia Ozick has a really wonderful quote about Virginia Woolf's work. What Woof was getting rid of was consecutiveness. Her novels are after a compression of then and now into simultaneity of a singular recognition and a single comprehension. They mean to make every generation and every instant contemporaneous with every other generation and instant. So that's the, the sense of all times being around us all the time. And this is a major part of Wolf's project in Mrs. Dalloway, capturing this contemporaneousness, this inclusivity of time, the coexistence of all times. It's a fundamental part of the human experience, but it hadn't quite been captured before in the way that Wolf manages to capture it and to portray it in these pages. Uh, and here's something Wolf herself said about that project of time in the novel. Uh, the project of the, the consciousness of the coexistence of time um, and her discoveries while writing it and, and the integral place those discoveries took in her fiction. There must be two levels of being, the surface and the spreading depths. To tell a whole story of a life, a writer must devise a means by which the two levels of existence could be recorded. The rapid passage of events and actions the slow unfolding of single and solid moments of concentrated emotion. So she's speaking to those layers of time here, experienced through memory, the surface and the spreading depths. So we're shifting a bit into talking about memory now. When we're characterizing memory on the page, we're automatically in a much more flexible relationship to time, collisions of various times, intersections of various times, because that's how our minds work. So one way of thinking about memory, rather than just as a um, convenient flashback, for instance, or something like that, is that it's actually the interpenetration of times in a character's mind, one time intersecting with another or colliding with another. That's how our minds work. And Mrs. D Dalloway exemplifies this in an extreme experimental way, but this holds true of memory's workings in any writing that involves building characters, even if our work is more conventional, more traditional. This idea of memory as more than just a serviceable flashback is something of huge value that we can learn from Wolf's more unusual methods. 
It's about how the past plays into the present for the characters and for the plot. And even more, it's about how multiple pasts and the present and possible futures coexist. Our memories, our minds working in collisions of various times. So excerpt D is an example of this in Clarissa's perspective. For she was a child throwing bread to the ducks between her parents, and at the same time a grown woman coming to her parents who stood by the lake, holding her life in her arms, which as she neared them grew larger and larger in her arms until it became a whole life, a complete life, which she put down by them and said, this is what I have made of it, this. And what had she made of it? What indeed, sitting there sewing this morning with Peter? She looked at Peter Walsh, her look passing through all that time and that emotion reached him doubtfully, settled on him tearfully, and rose and fluttered away as a bird touches a branch and rises and flutters away. So in that passage, Clarissa is simultaneously a child and a woman, and she's lived an entire life. It's complete. So past, present, and future, all in the syntactical construction of that point of view. She's also in the room with Peter, and she has to look at him through layers of time, right? Clarissa is literally um, both, because we all are both, child and grown people. Because we were all children once, we're still children somewhere in our consciousness. And, of course, in our memories. So another example of the collision of times is the next excerpt in Peter's perspective. He hears the bells of St. Margaret's Church striking 11.30. And he feels like the bells are somehow Clarissa. He's taken into a past moment but then also into a future moment. The sound of St. Margaret's glides into the recesses of the heart and buries itself in ring after ring of sound. It is Clarissa herself, he thought, with a deep emotion and an extraordinarily clear yet puzzling recollection of her, as if this bell had come into the room years ago where they sat at some moment of great intimacy and had gone from one to the other and had left like a bee with honey laden with the moment. But what room? What moment? And the sudden loudness of the final stroke told for death that surprised in the midst of life, Clarissa falling where she stood in her drawing room. No, no, he cried, she is not dead. I am not old, he cried, and marched up Whitehall as if there rolled down to him, vigorous, unending, his future. So again, the present of the bells, suggesting to him that those very bells had come into a past moment with Clarissa, and then also taking him into his own future and this fantasy of Clarissa actually dying. Let's look at excerpt F as well. Septimus demonstrates these same collisions of time in memory. It is time, said Rizia. The word time split its husk, poured its riches over him, and from his lips fell like shells, like shavings from a plane without his making them, hard, white, imperishable words, and flew to attach themselves to their places in an ode to time, an immortal ode to time. He sang. Evans answered from behind the tree. The dead were in Thessaly, Evans sang, among the orchids. 
There they waited till the war was over, and now the dead, now Evans himself. For God's sake, don't come, Septimus cried out, for he could not look upon the dead. So clearly Septimus sees the ghosts of his war trauma surging right up in front of him in a public park. And they're brought forth by the word time itself, right? It's time, said Rizia. So collisions of times. Here's another question on that note for all of us. How are you confronting your character with the presence of different times? And how does that affect them? So, and this is a little bit different from just memory as flashback. It's, it's a pastime existent in the present to the degree where it actually affects behavior in the present. And maybe it's future time as well. A character's reaction to some passionate hope or something. Collisions of time. So uh, Hermione Lee is a great Wolf scholar and biographer, and she has this to say about Wolf's use of time in Mrs. Dalloway. Wolf dissolves official time, the time that's measured out in clocks and bells, so Big Ben, right, St. Margaret's. She dissolves that into private interior time, memories, dreams, meditations. And this idea of time official and time public versus time private, time interior, leads us to another uh, aspect of time, a further aspect of time and character, specifically as time relates to setting. So here's another main principle we've explored in this course. Time affects how a character feels about their environment. This and all the preceding points that I've already talked about are all things that are laid out beautifully in Mrs. Dalloway, and they're all clues that we can follow as we strive to create characters who activate our narratives, who activate our settings, and who render our stories fully conscious, bring them fully to life. So these might seem like specific questions, but actually they're extremely, they're all encompassing questions. Answers to these questions could lead to answers about plot, for instance, about story arc, about theme, and definitely about character. So how does time affect the character's relationship to their environment? In Mrs. Dalloway, um, just to take one small example, we get Peter Walsh's feelings about London as he walks toward Regent's Park. Remember, he spent years in in, uh, India, and he's just returned that very day, that very morning. His family goes back in India, a colonial family, um, for generations. And um, this passage shows how that sense of time here in London and time away in India saturates London for him in his consciousness. So this is excerpt G, Peter's point of view. A splendid achievement in its own way, after all, London, the season, civilization, coming as he did from a respectable Anglo-Indian family, which for at least three generations had administered the affairs of a continent. It's strange, he thought, what a sentiment I have about that, disliking India and empire and army as he did. There were moments when civilization, even of this sort, seemed dear to him as a personal possession, moments of pride in England, in butlers, chow dogs, girls in their security. Ridiculous enough, still there it is, he thought, 
and the doctors and men of business and capable women all going about their business, punctual, alert, robust, seemed to him wholly admirable, good fellows to whom one would entrust one's life, companions in the art of living who would see one through. So the reference to generations, right? Um, at least three generations in India. There were moments when civilization, even of this sort, seemed dear to him. So time is affecting how this character feels about his immediate environment, and that's telling us something about the character. And that all relates to the plot, the, the mechanisms of the narrative, the fact that he's newly returned from India, that he will likely go back because he has this relationship there. Okay, so setting saturated with time and memory. This is also just another aspect of consciousness, right? Okay, so following on that is this question for all of us. How have you saturated your character's environment with memories and associations? That could carry you through a whole book, that question alone. Okay, so sort of an overarching principle here, and one that I've mentioned earlier in the term, and it's just is that to write seriously about character is to write about time. You can't get away from it. And the more closely you focus on it, the more conscious your character will become, the more alive. And I'd say the more alive the events in your narrative will become, even the relationships, the dynamics, the themes. So this is a general principle, but it does connect to characterization, to plot, memory, setting, all those ingredients to get your narrative moving, to deepen it through the consciousness of your characters and through that sense of there being beautiful, deep caves behind each of them, right? So thinking of character as a time creature. We are all time creatures. Like it or not. Character as a memory creature. We are all that too. A character always existing in a setting maybe numerous settings, but always in one setting or another. And those settings, each of them is always subject to time. Character existing in the context of relationships. And relationships are all defined by time. Every relationship in this book is defined profoundly by time, right? Septimus and Rhesia, for sure. Defined by Septimus's war trauma, Rhesia's longing for an idyllic childhood in her native country, uh, Clarissa and Peter's relationship, and their, the time that lies behind them. So what is character about? What is desire about? What are memories about? What is setting about? What are dreams and hopes about? What are conflicts, regrets, and relationships about? Time, right? Time, time, time. E.M. Forster, one of the Hogarth Press authors, said, as soon as fiction is completely delivered from time, it cannot express anything at all. Okay, so we've talked about those deep caves of consciousness in character, perspective and perception, character set against the larger backdrop of time, right? Memory as a collision of times, which is hopefully a new way of thinking about it hopefully a refreshing way of thinking about memory. Setting as saturated with time, saturated with memory. Relationships as a matter of time. 
And narrative and story emerges from all of this. Who are your characters' ghosts? What have your characters inherited? What do they hope for? What do they regret? How does that inform their actions? How does it inform them to do good? How does it uh, lead them to do harm? How have you placed your characters against the larger span of time? How are you confronting your characters um, and putting pressure on them uh, relating to the presence of different times? The, uh, the consciousness of different times within a character should exert a certain pressure. And have you saturated your character's environment with memories? Um, we started out with Virginia Woolf's diary. It's, it was published by Leonard Woolf after her death. It's just called A Writer's Diary. It's like an abridged form. It is an amazing book. Um, so I encourage you to check that out. If only um, if you found this book sort of impenetrable, reading that diary could actually be another entree into Virginia Woolf's work. And it's work you want to explore. You don't want to miss out on this writer. She not only has so much to teach, but she's just going to take you places. Just sheer, the sheer pleasure of the reading experience that she provides. But her story is one of resilience, spirit, energy, inspiration. If you look at the diary, you see that. And also in these pages, this book is about life. There's so many beautiful odes to just the pleasures of existence. So hopefully we'll talk about that in a second.